Welcome to the Glenn Merzer Show. You can find us across all your favorite podcasts, platforms, and on YouTube. Please be sure to subscribe on YouTube. We're trying to get to 2 million subscribers. We're just a tad short, so please help us out there. We have a very special guest today, and he and I have a lot in common. <laughs> Our guest is a professional comedian named Glenn Tickle from New Jersey. Welcome, Glenn. Thank you for having me. Well, as I was saying, we have a lot in common. Uh, our first one names are both sure. Glenn. Yeah. <laughs> you spell it correctly with one N. Does it irritate you when people do it with two? Because I what, hate it. What's the second N for? It's, Does anyone say, yeah, hi, you're Glenn? You're wasting ink. You're taking up unnecessary data when you type it out. It's absolutely foolish. Keep it brief. There's no need for Keep it. it yeah. I'm willing to get rid of the E. Just GLN. People would figure Glenn. it out. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know. But um, so we both have the same first name. We both spell it correctly. You're a professional comedian. I used to be a comedian in San Francisco. Nice. Um, I understand that you're on the vegetarian or vegan side of the of the dietary yeah, spectrum. I'm a, Is that correct? a vegetarian, uh, but I also recently found out that I'm lactose intolerant, and uh -huh. uh, so I feel like I'm I'm edging ever closer to to well, just being a vegan. Get you there. Yeah, that'll help get you there. And also, your last name is Tickle. Correct. And I'm remarkably ticklish, so there's that. <laughs> I thought you were so, going to say that's what Merzer meant in German or whatever <laughs> language German that name comes something. from. <laughs> no. So what was it like to grow up with the last name Tickle? Uh, it was it was rough, as, you might, as one might expect. Uh, a yeah. lot of my material when I was starting out in comedy was about my ridiculous name, and I still bring it up sometimes. I would love to not have to talk about it in shows anymore. I, I mean, I'm happy to talk about it now. I just mean, uh, there's a thing in comedy, like when you're starting out, you kind of have to talk about the most obvious thing about you. Uh, right. The late John Panette was a very large man and would do a lot of jokes addressing it at the top of the show. And I heard him talk about it once. Where he was like, if I don't tell the audience that I know how fat I am, all they're going to be thinking about is, does this guy know how fatty? It's like, you have to just kind of address. Uh, but the problem with my name is it now, sounds let me made up. You there. I, I once tried to do the opposite and it didn't work. I, I went on stage. I think it was at the other cafe in San Francisco and I stuck dental floss in my mouth. <laughs> so I had dental floss hanging out of my mouth for the whole routine. I went on stage I did my act, you know, I did 20 minutes, didn't mention it. And then at the end, I said, man, I've had a rough day. Everything went wrong this morning. I got some dental floss stuck in my mouth and it bombed. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I was up there for 20 minutes with dental floss in my mouth for no reason. That was <laughs> they just didn't even notice it was in there. <laughs> well, that's the Steve Martin arrow through the head thing. Uh, he talks about it in Born Standing Up, how... He, I mean, he put it on intentionally uh, right. for a bit and then he forgot to take it off. So then he was trying to uh -huh. transition and the setup for the next bit was he was like trying to pretend to be serious for a second. So I think he says like, oh, you know, I think it's time for us to get a little serious for a moment. But he had the arrow through his head still. And everyone's like, right. that's those two things together is what made the bit work. So he kind of stuck with it. 
Right. Uh, well, but Steve the problem and I are with... often compared. <laughs> Same. Everybody's always mixing us up. Yeah. Uh, the problem with my name is it sounds made up. Like it sounds like a bad stage name a comedian would have tried to give themselves in the 80s. Uh-huh. Which to me is is so distasteful. <laughs> like I don't want people to think it's fake. So I have to talk about it being my real name. And people still right. don't believe me a lot of the time. Uh, I talk mm-hmm. about it less on stage now, but when I was starting out, I would do, you know, 20 minutes of jokes about my name and how real it is and the problems it's caused over the years. And then at the end, people were like, yeah, but like, it's not, it's not real, real though. Right. <laughs> like you might've changed it to that. I'm like, no, it is the name on my birth certificate. There's a place in England but- called Tick Hill and it got run together from there mm-hmm. over the years. But, but let's say you were named Glenn Pensive. Do you think he would have become a philosopher? No, I don't you know? think so. Only because like I'm, I have a lot of siblings. I have a big family and none of them do comedy or are even mm-hmm. really that funny, uh, which they mm-hmm. hate when I say. <laughs> when you point that out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's, I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things where like, yeah, everybody's, everybody's funny when you're hanging out with your friends and stuff, you know, it's yeah. just some people decide to try to make a job out of it. I think it was Pete Holmes paraphrasing somebody on his podcast where he always compares it. He's like, yeah, everyone's funny when you're hanging out after work with your buddies, but can you be funny at eight o'clock on Friday? Like that's the job part of it where Uh we have to go into often not ideal circumstances. Like let's say a midnight graduation show. uh, Like I did the other night where it's like, this is, I'm good at this, but this is going to be a rough show. Like there's not, there's only so good this is going to get. And, you know, it went right. fine. I think I would say fine. I would say I, I got a passing grade to put it in high school terms. Now, now Glenn, your dry bar comedy special, the favorite has over a million views on YouTube. Yes. Tell us about that. How did that come about? And, and were you surprised by its success? Uh, yeah, I'm surprised by any success that I have ever. <laughs> and I'm surprised when anything good happens to me, uh, which is I should like I, I, I lead a pretty charmed life. I should be used to it by now. But it's still like anytime I make a thing and people watch and enjoy it, I am genuinely surprised. Uh, so Dry Bar, if, if your listeners aren't familiar with it, is uh, it's this company based out of Utah. They produce clean half hour comedies from spe- uh, specials from people. And a buddy of mine had done one and he's like, why, why haven't you done dry bar yet? You usually work clean. You have more than enough material. I'm like, well, they didn't, they didn't ask. Like, you don't, you don't just sign up. Like nobody, nobody reached out. So he put me in touch with their booker. Uh, and I sent them my first album, uh, which was also clean. And they're like, yeah, great. When can you come out? So they flew me out to Utah to record it January, 2020. And then I was like, oh, everything's going great nothing catastrophic is about to happen in about two months. Uh, so I film it at the beginning of 2020, then the pandemic hits, then everything in the whole world shut down for a while. So the special came out on their platform, I think July, 2021. And then a few weeks or months later, they put it up on YouTube and it kind of popped off on there. Uh, not initially, like pretty quickly it hit a few hundred thousand views and then it like plateaued. And then I noticed like it spiked again. So that's when I was like trying, it was getting pretty close to a million. And I was really just trying to, I I just wanted to hit a million. It seemed like a good number. And then you just kept watching it. 
So yeah, I had to watch it. my own special 900,000 times, but it was worth yeah. it because well, we got there, good. baby. <laughs> well, I find, I you do, know, I probably watch myself more than anybody. If I'm being honest, no one thinks I'm funnier than I do. Well, when I was in my twenties, I was a comedian in San Francisco and I used to hang out with other comedians and I'll ask you, but my sense was that comedians really want to be liked. We love to make people laugh. We love the sound of laughter. Yeah. And so I'm just wondering if that's why you do all your podcasts with a happy birthday banner over your head, <laughs> hoping to get the audience on your side. Is that what's yeah. going on here? This is just left over. Uh, my, my younger daughter had her birthday party yesterday. The theme was uh, her favorite YouTube channel. It's called A for Adley, and they they sell a birthday banner. Wait a minute. And Her favorite and YouTube channel isn't your YouTube channel. No, oh my my kids love me dearly, but do not enjoy my comedy at all. <laughs> Anytime I try to make jokes around them, they just tell me to stop. They don't want to watch Daddy. They did. They watched the Drybar special when it came out because it showed up. The YouTube algorithm was like, "Hey, you guys might like watch, watching this," and they were excited to see me on there. And they started watching it. They they lost interest five to ten minutes in easily. Like I don't think they finished it. Now I heard on, on the internet somewhere one of your kids saying it doesn't like uh, Star Wars. That yes, that, that was who, my youngest. Who, which kid? Which kid is that? Yeah, that's my youngest who just turned five. Uh, we were eating dinner the one night. I forget. My older daughter and my wife were somewhere, so it was just me and the little one at home. We we're sitting there eating dinner and she just brought it up out of nowhere. I wasn't talking to her about Star Wars. I didn't ask her her opinion. We were, uh -huh. just, we were just sitting there and she's like, Daddy, I do not like Star Wars. I was like, oh, all right. Uh -huh. You know, people can like different stuff. But she kept going on and on. She was doing it long enough that I'm like, I'm going to take my phone out. Uh, and I don't like putting pictures of them up on the Internet and stuff. But I'm like, I will film mm -hmm. me reacting to her telling me how much she doesn't like this thing that I genuinely love quite a lot. And uh, well, I, I'm on your daughter's side. I don't like Star Wars either. <laughs> you don't have to. I, it's <laughs> I probably watched it for the first time in my late 30s or something. And I just couldn't understand why people enjoy this. That's uh, I, I don't remember a time not having seen the the first movies. Uh, yeah. But my my absolute favorite movie is The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai. And I didn't see that until about five years ago. I still and haven't seen that one. Almost no one has. Anytime I try to bring it up, no one has any The Adventure idea what I'm of talking Who? Bucker Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. It's, it came out in 1984. The cat, it's got a, a pretty stacked lineup. And then when I tell people who's in it, they're like, how have I not heard of it? So the main character, Bucker Banzai, is Peter Weller, who is Robocop. It's got Jeff Goldblum, John Lithgow, Ellen Barkin, uh, Christopher Lloyd, uh, a bunch of people. It's it's great it's not a well done movie it's just the one that i love oh, well that speaks it's highly a mess. Of yeah. Yeah. yeah uh i tell people how much i like it and they're like i tried to watch it and i couldn't follow what was happening at all i'm like oh yeah no you're not supposed to i think you just kind of have to get so so let me understand this the, the movie is not well made and it doesn't make <laughs> sense yeah what is it that you admire about it that's a great question. Uh, I think it's because I the first time I watched it was the middle of the night. My my now five year old was a couple months old. She was not sleeping through the night. Uh, she still doesn't. But I was up with her and I was like trying to find something to put on just because I couldn't get her to fall asleep. 
And I saw that come up and I'd heard the name of the movie, but I never watched it. I'm like, oh, that seems like a thing I might enjoy. And like 15 minutes into the movie, I'm like, this is my favorite movie <laughs> in the entire world because uh, he is a and rocket scientist. Do you have science. any idea why you felt that way? He's a, he's a particle physicist, brain surgeon, uh, who is also, uh, the, he's like the most famous person in the world. Uh, and he's also in a rock band. So he drives a car through a mountain crosses the dimensional barrier and then he's like well time to go do a concert with my friends and there during the show uh he sees that one person in the audience isn't having a good time it's ellen barkin's character is crying so he shuts the whole show down uh and i'm like that's the most relatable thing i think i've ever seen on film as a comedian where i'll be like doing a show everyone's having a great time if there's one person just sitting there clearly not enjoying it that's the only person I want to pay attention to at that point. I want to figure out why they aren't liking it. What can I do differently? Because like you said, we want to be liked. I mean, some of us pathologically, it's probably not healthy, <laughs> the extent to which right. I need strangers to like and not be mad at me. Huh? Well, you know, when I used to do stand up in San Francisco, I would go on stage one night. It, it would be such a high, you know, let's say I'm in a, at a big club, especially when there was a big audience. I was always... Mm -hmm extremely calm when there was a big audience. So if I, yeah. on a rare occasion, played the Great American Music Hall or sometimes played the Punchline and there was a big audience, I'd go on. Sometimes it would be a good night and I'd kill and it would be such a high. And then the next day I'd be going on in front of 15 drunks at some yep. dive and I couldn't get a laugh and I would get nervous. Because I, the smaller the crowd, the nervouser I would get. Because I know Correct. I just can't. I can't make twelve people laugh like I could make. It is easier. It's laugh. so. I would much rather stand in front of a thousand people, yeah, and try to get them to laugh than ten. Yeah, it's hard. And it's, it's hard. I, and I teach a stand-up class. Yeah, and, and you and I, I think, are similar in this too. That we need people to be listening. We're not making funny noises or doing yeah. impressions, right? It's I do I tend to do like longer stories and it's yeah. like I I you kind of have to pay attention to to enjoy it. Uh so that's I've done a, a couple shows uh recently that have not gone well. When, uh, uh so you were saying that um that um he's playing in front of a small crowd, I think was your yeah, point. Yeah. I've done a couple shows recently where they didn't go well. And when you're starting out, like that's your biggest fear. You're like, Oh, I, what if they don't like me? But the, the shows that I've done that I wouldn't even say I bombed. Cause I feel like it's not my fault. There's like, no, I didn't do anything wrong. I showed right. up, I did my material, but it's, uh, there's a thing where like comics are like, Oh, you can never blame the audience. I mean, sometimes you can, but it's usually not the audience's fault. A lot of the time, it's the venue's fault or whoever put the show together. It's frequently their fault. I did one right. for a, it was a golf outing that was going to do comedy at the end of letting all these guys who'd just been mm -hmm. drinking in the sun for four hours come in. And then I'm supposed to be telling them jokes while they're filtering into the room and getting dinner at the buffet and sitting down. And when I got there, they told me that I was like, well, no, like let them come in and eat. And then I will tell them jokes. I'll even tell them jokes while they're eating, but everybody should be sitting down. I can't tell jokes to a buffet line. That's ridiculous. Uh, but they're like, well, no, cause we have another event later. So this is 
what you're going to have to do. I'm like, I mean, you're paying me. I'll do it, but it's not going to be good. And I was right. It was bad. <laughs> and normally when you have a bad show, you, you feel bad. You know, it doesn't it doesn't feel good to bomb. But that one, it's like, well, I'm not at fault here. <laughs> like, I don't there's nothing I could have done differently that would have made this show go better. Yeah, I've done, you know, I do a lot of charity events, too. And frequently they'll do like some kind of raffle. And a lot of the times they'll be like, oh, we're going to do the raffle and then we're going to have you like, no, me then raffle, because especially I don't know if it's just because of where I'm at in comedy. Like usually people aren't coming to see me specifically, especially at like a charity event. They're there to raise money for the soccer team or whatever. So they're all there because they want to win a basket raffle. I'm just there to fill the time while they eat dinner and, you know, make bets or how whatever raffle system they're using uh so if they do the raffle first then everybody's like well time to leave or they're bummed because they didn't win anything at the raffle and then you have either half an empty room or people who didn't win anything and they're in a bad mood so it's like no like you really got to flip those um and i did i did one where they they were staunchly against the idea of doing that and it went about as well as I had predicted that it was going to go. A bunch of people left immediately after the raffle. The ones who stayed didn't win. The power went out in the middle of the show. That was fun. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like if people are putting on a comedy event and it is not your full-time job to do that, maybe defer to the comedian about, you know, best practices. Cause I do, you know, we do this every day. It's right. like if I have a plumber come over to try to fix something, I'm not going to stand there and tell him how to fix it. I'm like, I don't know how that works. That's why I have you here. Like, that's right. Well, sometimes I go on stage and, and it wouldn't go well with the audience. And I think, you know, they're I should get out of this field. They're just not understanding it. It's it's not worth it. And then I would see a bad comedian go on. <laughs> with you know old Ooh. jokes or tasteless yeah. jokes and he would kill and i'd say what the hell am i doing this is this is proof positive i do good material they're not appreciating it yeah this jerk is doing offensive material they're loving it and then a great comedian would come on and the great comedian would do better material than i was doing and he or she would kill and i would say okay so they're Yes, it's true that there's an injustice that sometimes good material isn't appreciated. Yeah. Yes, it's true that there's an injustice that sometimes bad material is overly appreciated. But the ones doing the great Jerry Seinfeld doing great material, he's killing. So, you know, that kept me going for a while. That thought that, yeah. yes, there is an audience for if, I've if I had could that. get myself good enough. I've had that experience too, especially when you're starting out where there's a, a great Ira Glass quote, uh, the host of This American Life talks about how <laughs> when you are starting an artistic endeavor, you're doing that because you have taste in whatever field that is. Like if you start painting, it's because you have taste right. in what a good painting looks like, uh, but your skills don't match your taste. So you are not yet capable of making the kind of work that you would enjoy. So it can be frustrating for people. You're like, oh, I want to draw comic books. And then you draw a page of a comic and it looks terrible. And you're like, well, you at that point, you're either like, well, I'm a bad artist. I give up. Or you're like, I guess I got to get better. And in comedy, when you're starting out, it's that it's like, I know what comedy I enjoy. I want to make comedy. You know, Steve Martin's my all time favorite. So I'm like, I want to be like Steve Martin. 
when you start, when you're doing your first couple open mics, you're not there yet. And the audience knows that. So they're not as right. into it. So you can right. decide, you can be like, well, all right, I guess it's never going to be that good. Or you can, you know, stick with it until you, uh, you know, get as good as you think you can be. And right. uh, a lot of the comics that I've met who've been doing it for a while, who, who seem to have like, just hit a level where they're like, yeah, this is good enough. I think I will just be this level of good at comedy and just ride that out. Um, right. I hope I do not ever get there. Like I always want to be getting better at this, which is not true of most things in my life. I'm fine being mediocre at a lot of things, but like comedy, I always am looking for how I can do a better job. And when I would start out and I would have that experience, I would be, you know, hosting at some hotel bar weekend room somewhere. And I would go up, try to do my you know smart little nerd boy jokes and get nothing and then the feature would go up some guy who's been doing the same half hour set on the road for 30 years and just kill and it's like well if that's what they want i was never gonna do good like there's no world in which my material connects with the same people that this material connects with and then but the best result of that is like what you said if then the headliner goes up and they're great and they're doing you know, well-crafted material and it's working, that would kind of give me hope. Like, all right, so it is possible to do this. When you just right. watch, you know, hack material of people just telling their favorite racist street jokes for 20 minutes and they're murdering the room, it's like, why am I even here? Right. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I try so hard to think of good jokes that people will relate to. And this guy is just literally like saying stuff he heard at a bar once. Right. Well, I, I think, you know, you've hit your field when you're not letting yourself off with easy excuses, when you're holding yourself to high standards uh, and and yeah. trying to improve your craft. Before I got into doing comedy, I went to school for film and I would I, I made a feature my last year of college. I've done some shorts. Oh, you made a feature. And uh, it's hard. Like, it's really hard to do that. And yeah. I couldn't. I couldn't get hired to do another one anywhere. And then I saw like, well, standups are getting hired to write things. Like I know right. how jokes work. I don't mind standing in front of people. Let me just go do that. Right. And right. W when I started, it's like, Oh, this is, it's easier. I mean, I don't know if that's objectively true. It is easier for me to do stand up comedy than it is for me to write and direct uh, right. movies. Uh, I remember so a, I, a kid. I stuck I, with that. I remember, remember a kid I knew at college who had the persona of a genius. He just carried himself like a genius. Okay. Condescended to people a little bit, talked like he was a genius. And he was a philosophy student because he was a genius. And then it turned out that he was flunking out of college. It's and real, I said, uh, well, Rushmore what, situation. What, what seems to be the problem here? And he said, well, you know, I have brilliant ideas. I have extraordinarily brilliant ideas. I just can't seem to express them in words. Yeah. And I, my thought at the time was, you know, if your ideas are really that genius, maybe you should be able to express them in words. Well, that's, uh, I mean, going from film to, to stand up, like I, I, I mean, it, it always sounds insane and uh, conceited to say stuff. This I'm like, I have good ideas. Like I have, things I think people would enjoy hearing. And it is just like a question of form. Like it is really hard right. uh, to sit and write a script, get a crew together, film it, edit it, get it into festivals or somehow get it in front of an audience that can take you miss the part about raising money. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's the biggest challenge for all of it. Yeah. Uh, 
but it can be years before you find out if an audience of people likes the idea you had for a movie, but I can be on stage, think of something and just say it immediately. And right. that's hard to compete with, uh, as, yeah, there's as no far filter. as art forms go. And yeah. it is, I mean, I still, I've, I've done some other film projects. I haven't like abandoned entirely the thought of ever doing another one, but, uh, this mm -hmm. is, this is going pretty good for now. I'm enjoying it and it, it seems to be going all right. Now, for how long have you been a comedian? Uh, since 2009. Started October, okay. I forget, 19th, maybe? Sometime in October. Okay. And um, so early in your career as a comedian, you had a child, right? Yeah, it was a, a couple years in. Um, yeah. So was... then did you say to yourself... Can I can I keep doing this as a as a as a career and be a family man? Yeah, it actually kind of helped. Um, I don't recommend it as advice. I'm not telling young <laughs> comedians to go out and procreate because it'll help your career. But before my first kid was born, I was doing a lot of jokes that were kind of uh, more of like absurdist or abstract of just trying to think of like, what's the thing an audience would think is funny? I would like sit down and try to write jokes for jokes sake. And it went fine. Uh, I mean, I stuck with it long enough that I was four years, three and a half years in uh, when my daughter was born. But once she was born, uh, I had a show. It was like two or three days after. It was the only one I didn't cancel. I was opening for comedian Mike Kaplan, uh, who I'm a big fan of. I'd worked with him once before. I'm like, I really I don't want to cancel this show like. The other like local bar shows and stuff, I canceled those. I'm like, I really want to go work with Mike again. I'm a big fan. And the whole set was, I just talked about how tired I was because I had a baby two days ago. And I was like, I, I, I just like kind of talked honestly uh, about the situation. I so you I was had, in. you had children for material. That's I, what you're saying. I had one child just to do it and then uh, <laughs> when my wife w was ready to have a second one she did use that as an argument because i was kind of on the fence <laughs> you need more material and she's like think about all the jokes you wrote when our first <laughs> kid was born if we have okay. another kid you're gonna get so much more material i'm like this is that's not a good reason uh i mean i'll do it but that's that's flawed logic um, well, you but know I what did, could I be just really recorded funny. another special, and now I need more material. So it's like you know what could we, be really funny. Go Glenn, for triplets. No, triplets God. can be funny. That's my biggest fear. Uh, when we, when my wife was pregnant with the second kid, I'm like, if it's twins, I don't know what I'm going to do. Because we, when we first yeah. got married, we set a limit at two, because that seemed uh -huh. like about all we could handle. And because yeah. uh, I'm one of five, that always felt ridiculous. I'm like, that's there's too many. Yeah. You got to buy a special car. Like you can't bring friends anywhere because there's not a seat for them. Uh, yeah. It is. Which Bananas. number are you of the five? The second. Second. Yeah. So I don't know if I, if I would feel differently if I was like third or fourth and I'd be like, oh yeah, have, you know, three or four kids, but uh, I'm the second. So it's like, that's, that's where we draw the line. Um. Now tell, tell me about your vegetarian uh, leanings. Sure. You're not a, you're, you're not a complete vegan yet, right? No. Uh, I think yet is actually probably the way to phrase it too. I feel like I'll get there eventually. Well, I'll is... try to get you there by the end of the show. <laughs> I, uh, in high school, I stopped meeting, eating meat, uh, for a while. Cause we read the jungle in social studies class. Okay. Uh, and at the time this was the late nineties 
it was just harder to like be a vegetarian in the world. Like you would go to a restaurant and be like, oh, there's, there's literally nothing that I can eat here. Uh, like right. can I have a side of like just steamed vegetables and like, oh, they all, they all got bacon on them. Sorry, but you gotta. Now, now the jungle was a novel about how filthy the meat industry is. Yes. Yeah. It was what, Upton what, Sinclair. Was that your, I forget what year. Was your, but... was your concern the filth of it or was your concern the cruelty to the animals or what? Uh, in high school, I think it was a bit of both. It was mo it was just th that book's gross. And then every time I would try to like eat meat after it, all I could think about was like the grossest parts of that book. So it kind of scared me off of it. And then after a while of just like having a genuine hard time, I mean, especially as like a teenager with without my own income or like means of getting to the store, it's like I I I wasn't the kind of kid to just like present my mom with a shopping list and be like, purchase this food for me. Also, like we didn't have a ton of money growing up. So it was kind of just, you know, whatever was around. Uh, my my parents tried to be accommodating uh, to their credit, but I, I gave up after a while. And then uh, I, you know, I you start hearing about like the impact on the climate that it's having and. Uh, the cruelty of it all. So I was eating like just kind of consistently less and less meat for a while. There's a, there's a local farm here that like you can go to and like you see where the animals are and you can like walk around and it's like, it seems like a good situation. The, I think the, the phrase they use is like, we want the animals to only have one bad day on this farm. Uh, so we would get meat from there and that, that was that the only meat I would eat. That only one bad day thing <laughs> won't won't pass muster with a lot of animal rights activists. But uh, yeah, I I agree. Yeah. I, that's you know the thinking right. at the time. Uh, and I was right. eating less and less. And then it was around when my kid was born. It's like well, I'm eating you know almost no meat anyway. Let's see if I just didn't eat any of it. Let's see how that goes. Uh, and that was a decade ago, and it's been going fine. Uh, yeah. So. I'll, probably stick with it and then like i said i just found out i'm lactose intolerant a couple months ago uh so now i'm like transitioning dairy out um and it's my my wife and kids uh aren't vegetarian but we usually don't have meat in the house just like it's easier that way um and it's it, there's like a line where it's like well i don't want to like force this on my wife and children. So I, I talk to my kids about like why I don't eat meat and all that. And I'm like, it's up to you guys what you want to do, but I'm also not going to be like making you steak. So. Right. Right. Well, what does your wife say about it? What is, what are her opinions? She, uh, doesn't eat a ton of meat. Uh, but yeah, I think it's, I think it's kind of the default thing. I mean, I don't really want to speak for her, but I think it's the, <laughs> She just the other room was are you speaking for me? Um, <laughs> I don't want to speak for you, my love. Uh but I think it's like the the reason that I'm I'm not a vegan is like it seems hard. Like it's a lot of uh putting a lot of mental energy into it, if nothing else. And it's you know, I'm not sure I'm I'm up for like thinking about literally every single thing that I eat all the time. Um because I mean as a I'm a, a father of two with currently untreated ADD like I'm my my brain capacity is stretched pretty thin so I'm 
having not eaten meat in a while, it's like, yeah, this seems like about what I can manage. And I like, it started gradually, like things just get eliminated over time. Um, mm -hmm. And I have friends who have done the same thing and then they will like add things back. I've never like backpedaled on any of it. I think I stopped eating uh, pork first because I heard about how smart pigs are and that made me sad. So then I didn't want to eat them. And then uh, it's, it's just, yeah, like the list of stuff that I don't want to eat keeps growing and, uh, now recently the, the list of things my doctor tells me I shouldn't eat is also increasing cause I'm 40. So, yeah. uh, well, cheese is also pretty intelligent. You might want to stop eating cheese. <laughs> yeah. That's, I mean, my, basically what my doctor told me, she's like, it would be more right. intelligent of you if you didn't eat this so much. Exactly. You know, when, when I, uh, became a vegetarian at the age of 17, I kept eating cheese. Mm -hmm. I didn't eat any um, other, I didn't, I didn't eat eggs or any other animal products, but I ate cheese because I had been convinced that I needed the protein. Yeah. Um, and then in my thirties, I started to feel pains in my chest and I realized, you know, cheese is just saturated fat and cholesterol. It's just liquid meat. So from a health standpoint, if you cut out meat, but you're eating cheese, you know, it's, it's not doing you that much good. You got to get rid of all that animal protein and saturated fat and cholesterol. Yeah. Of, of all the reasons, uh, to not eat meat or animal products, uh, health, my health specifically is, is pretty far down on the list. Like it is one of the last things I consider. Cause it's not good to begin with. Like I have an autoimmune disease, so like the ceiling of how good my health is ever going to be is already pretty far down. It's not like I don't think about it. It is just like, I, I don't know. It's not like, oh yeah. It, until the, I found out I was lactose intolerant. That was when it's like, oh, all right. Like what I'm eating has a, di a, a direct impact. Like I can feel the, the change from like, oh, if I just stopped eating dairy, I would almost immediately feel physically better than I do if I kept eating. Um, I think so. Yeah. But pizza is my favorite food of all time. So that's been the thing where it's like, well, yeah, I'm like, I'll still eat that sometimes. And then I will usually feel pretty terrible after. <laughs> and I've, uh, well, you know, I had it for lunch right before this podcast. And, uh, but I've been like, I've, I've done it with, you know, like the cashew cheese and stuff. And like, I've, I've yeah. gotten, uh, I found some like good measures of doing it. Yeah. Uh, Either like cashew make cheese or, or no cheese, you know? Pizza still tastes pretty good with no cheese, in my opinion. Yeah, it's, I mean, I was talking to my my sister-in-law yesterday about how she's like, oh, you know, like even bad pizza is still good. She's like, what's the, it's not like you've ever had bad pizza. And I'm like, I did at a place called Mr. Pizza in Grand Rapids, Michigan. But other than that, like I live in New Jersey, we have the best pizza of anywhere. Uh, and it's, yeah, like, you know, even, even pretty disappointing pizza is still pretty good. Now, what percentage of the year are you on tour? Uh, I don't think I've ever thought about it percentage wise. Uh, I, well, I are usually you on have tour half the time, half the time. Uh, no, uh, I, and mostly because of the, mostly because of the kids. Um, mm -hmm. like I have, I have a, a couple friends who in the past couple of years just are essentially living out of vans as they tour around. Um, because they're like, well, if I'm on the road all the time making money, why pay rent somewhere? I'll just, you know, bounce around 
club to club, you know, stay in hotels, uh, cause it's like you ultimately can save money that way. But if you have two small children that you love and you don't want to be gone all the time, uh, right. I usually, I'm, I'm probably out on the road somewhere once or twice a month. Um, mm-hmm. I've been doing a lot of virtual shows during the pandemic, uh, for most of 2021 and 2022, that was like my whole source of income was doing virtual comedy. Um, and then and how does things... that work? Doing how does doing virtual comedy work? How, how do you get a virtual comedy gig? Uh, a lot of them are corporate uh, because you know they're like everybody's working from home. We have to do something to you know keep spirits up. So they would have you know a meeting or whatever, and then I would sign on to the Zoom call and tell jokes for a while. And those ones I actually those corporate zoom shows are usually more fun than just regular comedy zoom shows, which feels counterintuitive. Cause if you ask me, do I want to go do a show at a comedy club or at like a conference center in person, I'll go comedy club every time. Um, but online it's, I've had a much better time doing corporate shows because, uh, they are like listening. <laughs> They're not, well, are, not they, are, they mute, are they muted or are there sometimes. mics on? Uh, sometimes they are muted. I talk about it in uh, the the hour that I just filmed. Uh, I talk about how I did a show for a company in India. So I had to do it in the middle of the night and every person was muted and their camera was off. So I was just telling jokes in the middle of the night <laughs> to just a black silent screen for an hour with like no feedback at all. I'm like this with indian names their names yeah right? uh sometimes people will be muted but they'll like you can do smiley face reactions and stuff uh-huh. in in zoom so sometimes i've done shows where it's like i can't hear anything but there's little happy faces and hearts popping up on the screen and right. uh, i'm like i've played enough video games in my life that i can like internalize that as as feedback but when you do it for just nothing it is it feels insane you're like it's it's four in the morning I, I'm in my dining room right now, but I do uh, the virtual events are usually from a shed in my yard, but it's very hot today. So I'm just doing it from inside. And it's like, you're just sitting in a, in a booth, in a shed in your yard. It's four in the morning. You're just talking for a long time with no feedback. I'm like this, there's gotta be a better way. <laughs> and it's, but they left a, that company left me a five-star review. They loved it. They had a great time. <laughs> I'm like, I, I can't, I couldn't have known that in the moment. Um, but sometimes I always tell them like at the start of the show, I was like, you know, you guys can be unmuted. I would love it if I could see and hear a couple of you, but some, you know, if everybody's working from home, if you have a dog or a garbage truck is driving by or something, your neighbor's cutting the grass, sometimes you gotta be muted. So I try not to like belabor the point, but I always ask at the start of the show, I'm like, it will go better if I can see and hear you. And sometimes they just don't care. I, I had a friend try to recruit me to do virtual comedy and the yeah. thought of telling jokes to a screen and not even hearing the laughter to me, it's, it has very little in when common. When they're muted, with- it's rough. Um, yeah. the, the virtual shows that I've done that have just been like, uh, I, I'm trying to, I can't think of the word, like not corporate, just regular comedy where it's like a, a right. comedy club, comedy clubs were doing them for a while during the pandemic where they're like, oh, you know, we'll have some comics on uh, Steve Hofstetter, a, a comic out of Pittsburgh now did like a virtual club uh, where at, like 
standard, you know, every Friday and Saturday night, there's a, a full lineup of like pro comedians because everybody was home uh, mm-hmm. and they were just doing the shows virtually. Uh, I don't know if he's still running that. It was called Nowhere Comedy Club for a while. And the regular ones like that, where it's just a regular audience of people at home who just want to watch comedy would would be untenable a lot of the time. They're just they're home and they're not really paying attention. They're muted, but they don't realize that we can, or they're unmuted, but they don't know that we can hear them. So they're just talking and it's, you're trying to figure out which of the 50 people on screen is making the noise. And it's a mess. (laughs) That's terrible. But people in the corporate world, you're like, Oh, they're at work. Like this is a fun activity, but they are, they are at work. Like they know how to behave at least most of the time. Very few incidents. Uh, I think for corporate zoom comedy where I've had to like specifically like had to address somebody being a nuisance. Right. Um, I think I saw your wife there. Yes. She, she wa- grabbed a plant. I don't know what she got. Oh. Um, you're, you're one generation younger than I am. So tell me this. Do you feel that your generation had it easier or harder than your parents' generation? My, my, you could be my son. You could be Glenn Jr. Um, do you feel that your generation had it harder or easier than my generation? And how do you feel about your kids' generation? Uh, I mean, I, the honest answer is I think generations are made up. I don't think it's uh, like you might as well ask, like, do you think like Gemini's have it harder than Virgo's? No, because I don't believe in it. Uh, like baby boomers but, but, but as an idea. I, I didn't grow. I didn't grow up with cell phones. How old were you when you got your first? Right. Cell I mean, phone? things change over time. That's true. Yeah. But uh, what I mean is like the idea of like baby boomers as a collective happened because after World War II, there was like a significant increase very quickly in the population in a right. way that like had broad effects on every part of society. And subsequent like generations that get labeled is just like, oh, we're, we just want to, you know, talk about young people and we need a word for them. So we just don't sound like we're complaining about young people uh, because right. that a, bu- a bunch of people were born within a couple of years. And then, you know, I'm my older brother was born in 1982. My youngest brother was born in 1988. Like that's a, a six year window. So you would be like, oh, we're all in the same generation. But if you ask people like who? what's the cutoff for millennials? Me and my older brother, millennials, my younger siblings aren't. And it's like, well, we're the same generation. We're like literally the same generation of our family. Um, But I I think being, I'm 40, I was born in 1983. uh, So we were the the age of people or, you know, uh, a generation where a bunch of technology got introduced to us very quickly and we were were young enough to kind of like ride it out and figure it out as it was coming. And I think what happens is that's everybody, right? Everybody hits a certain point where they're just done learning new stuff. For me, that's VR because uh, it gives me a headache. So if that's where the future's going, it's going to leave me behind because I don't <laughs> want to wear goggles to check my email. But <laughs> I am also noticing with my kids, they know how to use an iPad, but if something is not working on the iPad, they don't know what to do. So I don't know if it's me specifically or if it's a generational thing of as things were getting introduced to me, 
I, I was a big nerd as a kid and as an adult. Uh, but like, I loved computers. I learned how to build them and like put them together from like parts that my neighbor would help me find. And so I know how to fix computers, but now they've changed so much. Like I can, I can fix a software issue most of the time, but I'm not going to crack my MacBook open anymore and like try to swap out the Ram for something faster. Uh, but my kids, like the second there's a problem on the iPad, they're like, well, iPad's broken. We're just going to go do something else where I will like really dig in and try to fix it and uh, try to figure out what the problem is. If something's not working the way it's supposed to, it really irritates me in a way that uh, I'm not sure is healthy or <laughs> or the, the average lived experience. Well, do you remember how old you were when you got your first cell phone? Um, I think it was sophomore year of college. Okay, so you were an adult before you got legally. Your first I was cell an adult. Phone. Yes. Yeah, briefly, you were you were new to adulthood, but you were yeah. an adult, and so you remember the feeling of going places without anyone being able to call you or yeah. text. You. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I had we had a rotary phone at home. <laughs> we had, I had a black and white TV yeah. as a kid. That's how old I am. All right. You had um, a black and white TV. Yeah, we had a color one too. It's just we also had a black and white one. Wow. Um, um, question is, did life improve, do you think? When, yes. Yes. You're, so you're pro cell phone. Oh, this, I thought you meant just in general. Um, did, yeah, did I'm pro. Did life improve when, when we all got so uh, electronically connected? Yeah, I think so. I think generally things have have improved over time uh there's you know like the the classic you know party question of like if you could go back in time to any point in history where would you go 50 years in the future i'm not going back there's nothing back there i want to see i want to see how this turns out and i feel like 50 years is far enough where you could still kind of understand what was going on right if you go a thousand years in the future you know picture what things would have looked like in 1023 and like do you would you would would somebody from 1023 figure out an ipad probably not uh but you go 50 years i think you got a shot at like getting caught up or at least existing um but i think in general things have gotten better i think it has it's helped in in so many ways there's you know the concern that parents have now of like oh is my kid having too much screen time uh exactly. we uh, we've not there's there's never been like a hard limit uh with my kids of like oh that's it that's the half hour of ipad time you get today but they also my two kids are very different they use technology differently like my older daughter will sit there and read national geographic kids she will work on like a coding project she will uh you know be planning some event with her friends and then my younger daughter just wants to watch uh, YouTube videos and play Roblox. So it's like, yeah, well, yeah, you can't do that all day. But I'm also not going <laughs> to tell my older daughter, be like, hey, you've been reading too much history on the iPad. You got to go look at a, a piece of grass for 10 minutes. <laughs> like that seems insane to me. Plus as like a, a nerdy computer kid myself, like most of the things that I've gotten, even career-wise have come from, you know, my ability to figure out how something works, which is because when my parents got their first computer, I was the one of in our family who like figured out how it worked first. And I've been tech support for my entire family ever since. Like 
I think I was seven. And now anytime anyone in my family has a computer problem, I still get called and it's like, well, it's different now. I don't, I'm just going to type what you said into Google and try to figure it out. And like, yeah, but you know how to do that. So I don't know. I think it's a, to, you know, that's a long winded answer of saying, yes, I think technology is helpful. Uh, there's yeah. obviously negatives too. I'm not going to say, well, let me give you one of the negatives. There being let me give phones. you one of the negatives. I'll be in a restaurant and I'll see a couple that seem to be on a date. And yeah. they've each got a cell phone and I don't know, are they texting each other? I mean, it, it just seems they like people aren't connecting as much in, in person. Uh, I because I mean, I don't like cell phone becomes a crush. <laughs> so, What's that? I don't like connecting with people in person. So I don't, I don't necessarily see that as a downside. Um, I, like I, it's my job to be around people and to talk at them. If I have to, get to a show early and i'm like trying to make small talk with the people putting the show on before the audience arrives or just like talking to audience members after the show genuinely really uncomfortable for me i don't i don't thrive in that environment but i know it's important like i can't just show up to a show and leave you know sometimes you got to sell merch to help cover the cost of getting to the show that kind of stuff so uh -huh. i don't know i mean even doing the virtual shows the reason i do so many is when the pandemic hit and we we're all home i'm like yeah i know I have a film degree. I know how cameras work. I, I can operate OBS and other softwares to figure out how to make this look and sound nice. And then I'll do a show with somebody who's just holding their phone in their car. And it's like, well, yeah, that's mine looks better. Cause I've, I've put some thought into this. Uh, and I think that's, that's helped, but I don't know. I'd see my kids, especially during the pandemic when they couldn't be around their friends. I mean, having something like, the messenger app that my daughter and her best friend used to talk to each other was so important during that time. And now, I mean, she has my 10 year old has my old phone, but it doesn't have a SIM card in it. Uh, so it works on our Wi-Fi when she's home, but it doesn't work as a phone out in the world. Um, because I mean, I don't, I'm not, like I said, I don't put that much thought into limiting screen time or anything, but I also don't think my kids need unfettered access to the internet at all moments of their lives. So sometimes we'll be driving somewhere and she'll be like, oh, my phone doesn't work. I can't do this thing that I want to do. I'm like, well, then you're going to have to wait till we get home. Like you, you don't get, right. I tried explaining Saturday morning cartoons to my kids the other day and I might as well have been speaking moon man talk like they didn't understand it at all just the idea that things only come on at a certain time and even just how channels work they're like we don't get this at all because they were arguing over who got to pick the next thing that they watched and i'm like when i was a kid i would have to fight with your aunt and uncles over who got to pick what show we were watching because we had one tv shows were on at a specific time and if you know, if Uncle Brian wins the argument, then I'm not going to get to watch Ninja Turtles this week. And I might never see that episode again because it wasn't all recorded always. And they they didn't get that at all. So I don't know. I think stuff like being able to watch whatever episode of Ninja Turtles you want at any given time is a nice feature of technology. Now, when the pandemic hit, were you thinking that this had something to do with animals. The very, um, you know, you, you, when, when, uh, when you read um, The Jungle, you decided yeah. 
This is a filthy industry. I don't want to be around it. When the pandemic hit, did you relate it to the animals as well? Uh, no, I, I didn't make that connection. I didn't put a lot of thought into where I thought the the coronavirus came from because, I mean, I'm a comedian in New Jersey. Like, I'm not it's not my job to crack that case. So it's like, well, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to try to figure it out. I'm going to try to like make sure my family gets through this was like my main concern. And then, uh, it's, I forget. Um, God, there was a, there was a book that like predicted it. I mean, it wasn't like they didn't predict it on purpose. It was just the plot of the book was pretty similar to how the, the COVID pandemic played out. I cannot well, remember. I'm blanking on the, the reality is that almost all pandemics have to do with the connection between animals and humans. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, yeah. you know, there's the outbreak monkey. Like that's, I think what everybody thought of pretty quickly. Uh, there were a lot of memes and stuff going around the internet of the outbreak monkey in the first couple of weeks of the pandemic. Um, but I mean, yeah. that's true of like a lot of diseases just because things behave differently from, one animal's body to a different animal's body. It's also the case, though, that when animals are um, are crowded together in unnatural conditions, that yeah. breeds disease. And when people are interacting with the crowded animals, that breeds disease. So the two theories that usually come up are that either a bat was brought into uh, a lab in China and it was somehow created voluntarily or involuntarily in the lab, or it was in the wet market, uh, where either a bat infected another animal or people were eating the bats or they were eating some animal that was infected by the bats. Either mm -hmm. way, if we left the bats alone, we'd probably be fine. Um, and that that's become my view of the world is that we need to leave as much of the world alone as possible and then we may muddle through but we keep interfering with the natural world i mean i've heard the the argument where it's like oh yeah but whenever there's an e coli break it's because of uh lettuce and it's like well yeah but that's because of that's unclean because conditions the lettuce is like, downstream of a pig farm. right like it is it is because the conditions are right next to worse conditions. Uh, right. It's, I mean, I don't know. We can't just go sit on a mountain and not interact with the world. Uh, but, but, but wait a minute. But what we can do is if, if we don't eat animals, it's amazing how much of the world we can leave alone. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just like I said, when I started, uh, when I, or I, when I stopped eating meat initially in high school, it was after reading the jungle. And then again, as an adult, it was like learning about the impact that it had where if I'm being honest, the idea of people eating animals doesn't on its face bother me that much, but it is the conditions and extent to which, uh, the doing of that has a real impact, not just on the people or the animals, but the entire world where it's like, well, yeah, right. like, even just philosophically, like, look, if you want, if you tell me you want to eat a cow, I mean, that's your choice, I guess. But like, you don't have to systematically torture it first. Like you can just let it be for most of the time. Um, but I don't know. I mean, like I said, the longer I've not 
eating meat and the the closer i get to like edging to just probably hitting full vegan at one point it is just like i don't know i mean yeah why do you why do you want to do it why 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 you gotta eat the cow just let the cow they're cute they just want to walk around yeah. in the grass just let it be um well uh glenn tickle i expect that you will join the vegan team before too long I but feel like honestly case- we will probably get there. I have comedian friends who are like uh they they would describe it as vegan at home, vegetarian on the road because uh-huh. when you're traveling to like a new city, it can be harder to find food uh that is, you know, good and worth eating. All right. Well, your new special Glenn Tickle against the World Crime League. Yes, I think you're the first person to get year? that right. Thank you. Well, you're welcome. Anything Everybody you want to is- tell us about that? Where do people look for that? Yeah, it'll be on my YouTube page. If you just go to okay. youtube.com slash Glenn Tickle, it'll be on uh, smaller streamers and stuff eventually. But th- I'm trying to push people to my YouTube channel uh, at the initial launch. Uh, the title is the never made sequel to Buckaroo Banzai. It was in the credits of that. It says, watch for Buckaroo's next adventure, Buckaroo Banzai against the World Crime League. But no one, they never made that movie. So I'm like, well, if no one's using the title, I'll grab it. Well, I hear that that was a great movie. I love so, it. <laughs> um, so you're making the sequel to a, you know, a classic. Yeah. The, the, the special's not about Buckaroo Banzai as much as I wanted okay. it to be. Uh, it is just, right. <laughs> I just like the title. Well, I look forward to seeing it. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And, uh, continued success in your career. Thank you. You as well. Take care.